Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, again, we will be in 2 John verses 7 through 9. 2 John 7 through 9 this morning. Uh, we're going to keep going through the letters of John, and then we're going to do some Psalms, and then we're going to do 1 Corinthians. So we got some good things coming down the pipe for you. Uh, but today we're going to keep working here in uh, 2 John. Now, while you're turning there, I want to start with a little illustration that happened to me this last week. So I have a porch that is just outside my front door, and I was sitting outside because we've actually had beautiful uh, weather. Typically in the spring, it's just like sneezy tornadoes in Texas, but we've had beautiful weather this year, and so I'm sitting outside and just enjoying the weather, enjoying the sunset, and all of a sudden, a mockingbird, which I later learned it was a mockingbird, I didn't know it at the time, began to do what its name implied, which was to mock me. So what it did is it flew right in front of the tree in front of me and started like gawking at me, like yelling. I know you want me to make the noise it made, I'm not going to do that. But that's what it started doing, and it sounded very aggressive. So I sat there, and I was like, man, that bird is annoying. And then it starts to fly right at my face, okay? It just takes off. It's armed. It has a beak. It's coming right at my face, and I think, this bird is trying to attack me. So I lift up my hand to slap this bird out of the air. Now, don't say, Zach, you shouldn't hit the bird. He was aggressive. I was, this was self-defense, and so he's coming at me, and I'm, I, start, I, I raise up my hand. I think, I'm going to have to hit a bird out of the air, and then he sees me raise my hand and immediately backpedals and comes around and comes back to the tree and starts gawking at me again. And now I know he's coming in for the second wave, right? He's going to have a second wave assault here, and so I get my arm prepared, and he ducks down and comes right at my face again. And so I go like this because I'm getting ready to hit him. And he sees it and he flies away. I eventually had to go inside. I assume he won the battle, okay? I eventually went inside because it was no longer peaceful. But the next day, I went out there with what is called a bug assault gun. Does anybody know what this is? If you don't know what this is, this is the greatest invention over the last 10 years, including what's happened in medicine, okay? What this does is it is a little plastic gun that fires a burst of salt, Right, like a little shotgun, a little shotgun pattern, fires a burst of salt, and you can shoot flies out of the air. It's amazing, okay? Here's how you kill a spider if it's on the ceiling. You grab a tissue, ah, and then it falls on you, okay? Here's how I kill a spider when it's on the ceiling. Boom. Katie, can you sweep up the salt? That's how I do it, okay? That's how I kill a spider if it's on the ceiling. So I take this bug assault gun out there. I don't want to kill this bird. I just want to send him a message. I just want to send him a message, and so I ended up shooting a mockingbird with salt, and now I am the king of my castle again. Now, it was a very traumatic experience. I wrote a book about it. You might have heard of it. It's called To Kill a Mockingbird. Anyway, so, so <clears throat> here's why I tell you that. I was not at all expecting this. Never in my life do I go outside and I think, what birds are going to attack me today? That's not kind of how I think, okay? This bird had it coming. He wasn't going to turn the other beak. He kept fighting, but I wasn't expecting it at all. I was just trying to enjoy sitting out on my porch, and I wasn't looking for it, so it surprised me several times, okay? Now, here's why I tell you this. What John is going to do in this text today is he's going to tell you to watch out for something you might not be expecting. He's going to say to watch out for deceivers, to watch out for false teachers, to watch out for uh, antichrists. We'll talk about that and what that does and doesn't mean here in a second, because we have a tendency sometimes not to be aware of those things. We have a tendency to think if there's a false teacher, it's going to be very obvious. It'll be very clear. And like the mockingbird in my example, sometimes they come out of nowhere and you're not prepared. So this, this text will be our uh, spiritual bug assault gun as we get into verse 7. Let me pray for us to open up and then we'll jump in. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. We confess that it is perfect. 
It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is your self-disclosure to mankind that we might know you, that we don't have to sacrifice our children to the pagan deities because we don't know what God or the gods want, but rather you're the one God and you've told us who you are in your words. So we thank you for that. We pray that you would open our hearts as we study this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verse seven together. It says this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, I want you to look at that first word, just right out of the gate, the word for. You don't typically start a sentence with the word for unless you're referencing something, and that's exactly what John is doing here. He's referencing back to Jeff's sermon last week. He's referencing back to the verses before this. Throughout first, second, and we'll see in third John, John keeps saying the same thing. He basically says there are three tests that you can use to know whether or not somebody's really a Christian. The first one is theological. Do they confess the right Jesus? The second one is moral. Have their lives been transformed by the gospel? And the third one is social. Do they love others, specifically other Christians? And what Jeff talked about last week is the importance that we love one another, that that is a mark of true Christianity. When you find out that a coworker is a Christian and you didn't know they were a Christian, that should produce a joy in your heart. But here, John is gonna clarify to say just having love is not enough. You must also have correct doctrine, okay? Now, let me say it as clear as I can. First thing I want you to know about false teachers. Many of them will have this veneer of appearing very nice or appearing very holy, and it's a way to cover up their false doctrine. So Jared Lawson, our pastoral resident, you know who he is. He has the baby that's tremendously chubby that I make fun of, the little memory foam baby that he has, okay? He's the only baby I've ever seen that gives hand-me-down clothes to older children, okay? But that's his baby. He has a big, chubby baby. And uh, Jared taught in theological equipping last week, and he taught on Mormonism. And one of the things he said was really good. He said, do not say, but they're just so nice. Of course they're nice. They have to make up for bad doctrine with trying to trick you by looking nice. So the thing you need to see here is just acting loving is not enough. You must have correct doctrine if you are really a Christian. You know the first thing I think as soon as I see somebody that seems overly happy, like fake happy, overly nice, the first thing I think when I meet somebody like that is this, I bet that person's a serial killer. That's the first thing I think because the Bible teaches that we are broken because of sin that we are not polished and clean, that we are hurting and we are desperate and we need grace and we need a savior. So that's the first thing I think. One of the worst trainings I ever had to do in ministry was at another church. We had some experts come in to teach us how to protect children in the church from sexual assault, okay? They taught us how to do background checks and they taught us how to ask certain questions during the interview and these kind of things. And they did this test at the end of the class, which was fascinating. They put a bunch of pictures of a bunch of different guys up on the screen and said, can you pick out which ones have sexually assaulted children? And I thought it was very, very easy to pick them out. You know why? You just pick the ones that look the nicest. You pick the ones that look like they're trying to appear innocent so that they can get in there and harm children, so they can get into the church and they can harm children. Now, I'm not saying, unless you have a neck tattoo, you probably are a criminal. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's bad to look nice. My point is this. False teachers will also often cover up their false doctrine by appearing as an angel of light. That's what the devil does. The devil doesn't look like you think the devil looks like, right, with his French mustache and his, you know, trident and he's got like red skin. No, 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 no. The devil appears as an angel of light. He's seductive. He's tricky. 
And so what John's gonna say right out of the gate is yes, we should love one another, but we also must have correct doctrine. Look at the next phrase here. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Okay, I want you to see this. This word, by the way, in Greek, deceivers, is the Greek word planos. It means wanderer. It's someone who drifts away from truth. That's actually where we get the word planets. The, the ancients thought that the planets wandered throughout the heavens. And what this text wants to do is it wants to warn you and it wants to say, listen, there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world. Now, here's why I tell you this. We have a tendency to think, okay, there's like four false teachers in the world, and as long as I watch out for those weirdos, then I'm safe. No, 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 the Bible's gonna say that as a Christian, you will be assaulted on every side. So when you go out and when you engage culture, I want you to be a Christian skeptic. Every time you watch the news, every time you watch a movie, every time you watch a show, every time you read a book, every time you have a conversation, I want you to ask this question to yourself. What is this person selling? What is the agenda behind what I'm hearing? Because there's not just a few deceivers, there are many deceivers. You're gonna be a soul. The only thing I want you to just fully trust is the Bible. Everything else I want you read or you engage or you watch, I want you to have your skepticism glasses on because a lot of times you won't see that a deceiver is a deceiver. So there are several times in my ministry career where I've had to say to somebody, you are in a cult. And do you know what they always say? I'm not in a cult. And I say, that's what people in cults say, Okay. If several people are telling you you're in a cult, you should probably listen. You're not always going to know when you're deceived. You're not always going to know who is deceiving you. That's why this text is warning us. That's why it is giving this doctrinal test in addition to loving one another that we need to know. Look at the next phrase. What are these false teachers teaching? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Okay, let me say this. This is not the only false teaching that's out there. If somebody denies the second coming, they deny the resurrection, they deny justification is by grace, whatever it is, those are all false teachings. This is just one particular false teaching that John is having to deal with 2,000 years ago in his congregation, okay? And we don't exactly know what the false teachers, what group they belong to. So a lot of scholars have thought that it was some type of Gnosticism, some type of proto-Gnosticism, Gnosticism was this movement that taught that the physical world is bad and salvation was obtained not by trusting Christ but by this secret knowledge through which you could reach this ascent and reach salvation. It's actually very similar to Buddhism today, okay? Other people have thought that the false teaching going on in the first century is what is called Apollinarianism. What does that mean? That sounds like the ice cream with like the strawberry and the chocolate and the vanilla. What is Apollinarianism? Apollinarianism is this false teaching that taught that Jesus wasn't really human. He just appeared to be human, right? He might have even had a human body, but not everything humans have, not a human soul or a human mind or all the things he would need to really be human, that he's kind of like Clark Kent, okay? Clark Kent's not really human. He's from another planet, but he looks human. He's kind of like us, but he's not us. And he puts on the glasses and nobody knows who he is, which is incredible to me. You never see Superman and Clark Kent together at the same time and nobody can figure it out, okay? That's not how Jesus is. Jesus is not like God, he is God. Jesus is not like humanity, he is truly human. So what some people think that's going on here is that this is the false teaching of Paulinarianism. I don't think that either of those are correct. Both of those are false doctrines. I don't think that's the main thing that John is addressing because there's very little evidence that those are big movements going on in John's time, okay, that early. These movements usually come later. 
what is going on? What is the false teaching that John is combating? Here's what I think that it is. I think that he is dealing with people who are simply denying Christ and the need for atonement. Because notice, they're not only teaching that Christ didn't come in the flesh, they're teaching that they have no sin. They're downplaying Jesus' deity. They're, they're denying all kinds of things, okay? So why does it talk about Jesus coming in the flesh? I'll give you an example. Everybody in here know who Michael Jordan is, okay? Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time except for LeBron James. That's a joke, that's a joke. I know that Jeff and Jared and those guys love Michael Jordan. And so Michael Jordan, best basketball player of all time, uh, because I was working on this illustration, I had two dreams about Michael Jordan this week. That's what happens when you're a pastor. One, I was a waiter at Chili's because I dream big. And I was waiting on him and ignoring all my other tables because I knew he'd give me a good tip. The other dream, this happened two nights ago, he was chasing me, but he had the Chicago Bulls horns coming out of his head. It was terrifying, okay? That's what it's like to be in my world. So anyway, if, if I were to see Michael Jordan in a restaurant and I were to say, you're Michael Jordan, and he goes, in the flesh. Does that mean I think, oh, he probably thought that I thought he was a robot and he wasn't really human? No, it's just a way of saying, it's me. So what the false teachers are probably doing is they're simply the denying that Jesus is the Messiah. They're denying that you need atonement. They're denying he's the Messiah. They're still waiting possibly on a Messiah. They're fine with the Father. You'll see this because constantly John has to say you don't get the Father without the Son. And they're even probably fine with some type of charismatic uh, view of the Spirit that is inappropriate, but they don't want the Son. That's probably what's going on here. What they're doing is they're denying that Jesus is the Messiah and they're denying what Christ has come to do in accomplishing his ministry. Next phrase. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, what on earth does that mean? The term antichrist is one of those phrases where there is a lot of confusion, okay? There's a lot of confusion. So a few thoughts on this. First of all, typically when the Bible talks about antichrists or whatever, it's in the plural, okay? Anybody that's teaching false things about Christ is an antichrist. Let that hit you first. When we think antichrist, we only have a tendency to think of one particular figure in the future or something like that, despite the fact that the term antichrist doesn't even occur in the book of Revelation. What we're typically thinking of when we think of one figure is what the Bible will call a man of lawlessness. So let me give you a few thoughts on who that man of lawlessness might be, depending on where you're at in church history. In the book of Daniel, the power that oppresses God's people are governmental powers that are hostile to the Jews. To the Jews in the first century, the Antichrist figure was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, this, uh, this pagan ruler that killed all these Jewish people. The church father Irenaeus thought that the Antichrist would be a Jew from the line of Dan, based on Genesis 49. Chrysostom thought it would be a resurrected Nero who came back to life. The evil emperor Nero that used to like put Christians on pikes and light them on fire to light his garden parties and these kind of things, the emperor Nero committed suicide with a sword and there was this myth in the first century called the Nero Redivivus myth, that he had come back to life. By the way, that's why one of the reasons that the beast in Revelation has a wounded head, a mortal wound, yet he is healed. It's a reference to that myth. Gregory I thought that it would be anyone who called himself a universal priest. Now, the reason that that is ironic is because Gregory I went on to become the Pope, okay? So uh, he thought the Antichrist would be anyone who declared himself to be a universal priest. The reformers said that the Antichrist was the Pope, and the Pope said... It was the reformers. Just depends on what side you're on, right? In fact, in both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of 1689, it says explicitly that the Pope is the Antichrist. So if you hold to one of those confessions, I will come up to you and I'll ask you, do you think the Pope's the Antichrist? And if you say yes, I'll say, which one? 
And if you say, well, there's not one, it's the whole system. Okay, then you don't believe in a literal man of lawlessness. You think it's some type of system. In World War II, who did Christians think was the Antichrist? Who? Hitler, right? A lot of them thought it was Hitler. So what do we do with this? Christians don't agree. All these kind of things are going on. Here's the idea. Anybody who opposes Christ, teaches false doctrine about Christ, whatever, according to the New Testament, is an antichrist. But the Bible does seem to say that there is some type of super antichrist, kind of the Jedi master of antichristism or something. And you don't know whether or not this is a singular person or a system. There's debate within Christianity about that. But here's my question. I give you all that to ask you this question. Why does John here say the deceiver and the antichrist? Why didn't he just say, whoever teaches that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh is a deceiver? Why does he use these definite articles, the and the? Here's the simple reason. Because you are associated with whomever you follow. You're associated with whomever you follow. When Jesus tells the Pharisees that they belong to their father, the devil, does that mean they like ontologically belong to the devil? Like they, by nature, are actually demons? Like the devil's in the maternity ward and he's yelling at all the nurses because he's the worst and he's eating all the jello from the cafeteria because he's the worst, and he's giving birth, and those are the Pharisees. No, what Jesus is saying is, whoever you follow shows where your allegiance is. That's what John is doing. John is saying these people who teach falsely against Christ are antichrist, and to some small extent belong to any system or person that ultimately opposes Christ. John 8, 42, 44, Jesus says to these people that are confronting him, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Luke eleven twenty three. 23. Listen to this one. This one's huge. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Notice that neutrality towards Jesus is opposition to Jesus. Neutrality to Jesus is opposition to Jesus. You either belong to Christ or you are against him. There is no, he's just okay. There is no, he's just a good moral teacher. You either bow down and worship him as the eternal God or you are against him, or you are against him. Verse eight, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Let's look at that first phrase, watch yourselves. Let me explain what this does and doesn't mean, okay? This is not a command for morbid self-introspection, okay? There are places in the Bible that encourage you to do a healthy spiritual checkup. Are you in sin? Are you loving Christ? Are you loving others? Yes and amen to all those verses there in the Bible. This text, though, is not talking about introspection to see how you're doing. It's in the context to make sure you're not following false doctrine. So when he says there's deceivers out there, watch yourselves so that you don't follow the deceivers. That's in particular what he's addressing here. He's not addressing the the tendency we have for spiritual navel gazing where we are always seeing, how'd I do today? Did I pray enough today? Did I read my Bible enough today? Did I evangelize to somebody today? I had a lustful thought I shouldn't have had. I got mad in traffic. I argued with my spouse, which just leads to total depression. When you just see your depravity and there's no gospel after it, there's no, but I'm loved, but I'm forgiven, but I'm perfect in Christ, it will crush you. 
but this is a text to say to watch your doctrine. It's very similar to 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let me give you a little tip on uh, sanctification before moving to the next text. I don't know very much about golf, okay? I come from a golf family. I have family members that are incredible at golf. I am terrible at golf, okay? And I don't understand why it's so hard. In baseball, you have a round bat, a round ball, someone throwing it over 100 miles an hour, and it's moving, and they're trying to trick you, and people are yelling, and you can just crush it. But when you have a tiny ball, you put on a tee. It's not even on the grass. And you have a flat club, and it's completely quiet, and you get practice swings. Nobody's spinning it. Nobody's trying to trick you. You practice swings, you get up there, and just take a big just chunk out of the dirt. That's golf, okay? I like riding in the cart. I like getting a snack. When that person comes around in a cart and they have snacks, I think, this is why I do this. This is real golf. I've been thrown out of a golf cart, just riding, a buddy will be like, oh, there's my ball, man, I just fall off. Here's the one tip I can give you about golf because I know nothing about golf. I'll give you one tip. I don't like it, I'm not good at it. I like friends, I like outside, I don't like golf. Here's the one tip I know. When you're hitting the ball, you're supposed to keep your head down on the ball. You're supposed to be watching the ball. Your tendency, now follow me here with the spiritual application of this. Your tendency when you hit it is to want to look up. Why? Because you want to see how you're doing. And when you do that, you will hit a bad shot. What you have to do is you have to keep your head down, focused on the ball, and then you can look up after the shot is done. The same thing is true with sanctification. The same thing is true in sanctification. When you look up to see how you're doing, you'll miss, you'll slice, you won't do well. But if you will just stare at Christ, Christ being the the looking down in this analogy, if you will simply look to Christ, you'll naturally be sanctified. That's what's so amazing. When you pursue sanctification, you won't get it. When instead you realize I am loved, I am perfect, I'm forgiven, it is finished because Christ is perfect and I'm in Christ, all of a sudden you actually start to see sanctification happening. You start to see sanctification happening. Look at the next phrase. So that you may not lose what? What's the word there? Did the COVID get you? What happened? Uh, Let me read it again. So that you may not lose what we have worked for. Now, let me tell you why this is really important. This is not a text saying that you need to make sure that you're doing good spiritual things or you'll lose your salvation. That's how some people have interpreted this. That's not what this text is about. What John is saying is to watch your doctrine so that you don't leave what we have worked for, we being the apostles, John, and John's church. What he's saying is Christ only has one bride. He only has one true church, those who hold to correct doctrine. Don't leave that and join some weird cult church or something like that. Remain faithful and do not forsake all that we have worked for. It's not a text about you losing your salvation. It's a text about being faithful because you belong to a church built on the prophets and the apostles, as the New Testament would say. The full reward here, by the way, is simply a reference to eternal life. Simply a reference to eternal life. Now look at verse nine. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. I want you to look at this phrase, and you can underline it if you want to. Look at the phrase, goes on ahead. There are some false teachers who will take things out of the Bible, but what a lot of false teachers will do is they will go beyond the Bible. They will run on ahead. They will add something to the Bible. 
they will come up with some weird new interpretation of the Bible. For some reason, and this is just in the heart of sinful humanity, we have a tendency to always want to innovate. Some of the most arrogant people I would meet in Bible college or seminary would be these students who were very smart students, and one of the things they would do is they would hold weird theological positions. You know why? So they're not like everyone else. In a religion that teaches you to be humble, they would find pride in holding some strange view of something in Scripture that nobody else held so they didn't belong to what other people believed. It's absolutely insane. Christianity is not about holding new ideas, it's about holding old ideas and defending them from attack. The best ideas are old ideas. The best ideas are old ideas. Why is there a tendency in the human heart to want to just only say something new or to say something uh, you know, avant-garde or to say something like that? Well, because just saying what others said, that's not sexy, that's not cool, that's not innovative. God doesn't care about you being innovative, he cares about you being faithful. Christianity doesn't allow you to exalt self because you've got to go back to other people's ideas. Even if you're a PhD student who has to put forward a new idea in a thesis, it's not a completely new idea. You're uncovering the actual meaning of the text or you're uncovering the thought of some thinker that has gone before you. The best ideas are old ideas. And so one of the things you see with the false teachers is that they go beyond the Bible. They add to the Bible. They go beyond the gospel when it comes to these things. Let me mention a few movements going on in evangelicalism to watch out for that go beyond the Bible, that run on ahead. Let me give you a few and then we'll move on. First of all, any church that is pushing self-help, self-esteem, you doing it, that is running on ahead of the Bible. I don't care if you have self-confidence, I want you to have God-confidence. The Bible's not about you trusting in self. Cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes his flesh strength. But rather, my hope is that you trust in God. Any church that promotes living your best life now, you go get it and you kill it and you work you know, 150 hours a week and you, 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 build your kingdom here. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom. Any churches that have an over-the-top form of charismaticism where the focus is no longer on Christ and the gospel but on experience and hype, churches embracing any new sexual ethic, the LGBTQ movement, etc. God's views on morality have not changed just because we've gotten more technology or something like that. Woke churches, churches embracing only a secular definition of justice instead of a biblical definition of justice. We'll talk more about this in the new semester. Christians are for justice, but we have to define it the way the Bible defines it, not a way a culture would define it apart from Christ. Not a way a culture would define it just through legislation or something opposed to heart transformation among those who are broken. Any churches promoting universalism, pluralism, or inclusivism, saying that you can be saved outside of conscious faith in Christ. Churches promoting a victimization and outrage culture. The Bible would say it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. And our culture says, be offended at every tiny thing. Identity politics in church, feminism, critical race theory, transgenderism, etc. Churches who promote themselves out of pride. So a lot of pastors know that they shouldn't exalt self because that's sin but they just end up exalting self through using their church platform. If I can get this many Instagram followers and this many Twitter followers and this much influence, then I can show people my virtue signaling to a larger degree. I can show people how progressive I am just by using my church account. It's all just pride. Churches who redefine traditional doctrines. I've read two statements of faith by local churches recently where they said that God is one being with three personalities. That's not the orthodox faith. Persons, when we say God is three persons in the Trinity, we do not mean personalities. 
God is not schizophrenic. God is not, uh, uh, God, we don't believe in tritheism, three gods or something like this. God has one mind, one will. Churches who lean into what feels loving instead of what the Bible says is loving, all these things run on ahead. All these things run on ahead. Now, what is the teaching of Christ? What does it mean to abandon the teaching of Christ? It's two things. One, it's the teaching about Jesus. That there is, Jesus is only one person, but he has two natures. He's the eternal God, and at the incarnation, took on humanity while remaining God, and he is also truly human, okay? It's, it's the teaching that he himself taught. You'll see John constantly say, we've heard this love command from the beginning. What's that a reference to? That's when Jesus is saying to love God and to love others. So it's both the teaching of Jesus and the teaching about Jesus. To say it another way, the red words in your Bible have the equal amount of authority to the black words in your Bible. I actually don't like it when Bibles have uh, the words of Christ in red, one, because you don't always know which ones are the words of Christ. Our text is not that clear. Two, it always leaves them out when Jesus says something in the Old Testament or sometimes when he says something in the book of Revelation. And three, because Jesus probably didn't speak Greek primarily. He probably spoke Aramaic. And now four that I'm thinking about it, it has a tendency for us to sometimes think that the words of Jesus are more important than the black words. All of the words of the Bible are the words of the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. The teaching that Christ himself says and the teaching about Christ by somebody like Paul or whoever it may be. Now look at this. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Notice this. There is no salvation apart from Christ, period. It's not found in anywhere, anyone else. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What every other religion does other than Christianity is it tries to have some relationship with God or some relationship with salvation outside of faith in Christ. This is true in Judaism, where you want to have access to the Father, but you don't want to go through the Son, so therefore your sins are not atoned for. This is true in Islam, which Jeff taught on that's now online. It's a fantastic teaching. In Islam, Jesus is not the Son of God. He's this prophet who didn't even die on a cross for you, okay? They want to have God, some notion of God, without going through the Son. The same is true in Hinduism. In Hinduism, the, the gap, the infinite gap between creator and creation is blurred. That's why there's 33 million gods or whatever it is in Hinduism because natural things are also gods. This is true in Buddhism. In Buddhism, you try to reach salvation. You try to reach nirvana. And by that, I obviously mean the grunge band from the 90s. You try to reach nirvana through this type of Gnosticism where you try to escape want and ascend higher, but you're not going through Christ. This is true in atheism, where somebody finds their identity in being their own God. I'm not gonna serve a God, I'll just do what I want. I will just do what Adam did in the garden, and I get to make the rules. This is true in deism, which is a view that there's a God or a supernatural being that started everything, but then doesn't have any, any, any interaction with the world. He doesn't do miracles, he didn't send Christ, he's just this divine clockmaker that wound up the universe and just tossed it out to do what it's gonna do. In all of these movements, you're trying to have some type of salvation or some type of God apart from the God of the Bible, which you cannot separate from Christ because God is a trinity. And John is saying, you don't get to do that. The false teachers are fine with the notion of God. They're even fine with the notion of the spirit. They don't believe Christ has come in the flesh. They want nothing to do with the son. That's the meaning of the text. Now, <clears throat> how can I pastor you? How can I shepherd you? Because if you're somebody like me, okay, 
who's maybe very fearful. I'm, I'm 6'1", 200 pounds of pure anxiety. Okay, that's me. If you're like me, you might be thinking, okay, Zach, this text says, watch out for deceivers. Don't forsake what the apostles have taught. How do I know that I'll remain faithful to the end? How do I know that I won't be tricked? How do I know, Zach, that you're not tricking me? Maybe you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. How do I know that I won't fall away? How do I know? Here's what you need to understand. Stop reasoning yourself out of grace. God has given you grace and he's given you all these promises in his word to encourage you. And the first thing we do is we try to reason ourselves out of it. Okay, well, I'm saved, but unless I walk in a bunch of sin, then I was never saved. Well, you're just trying to reason your way out of grace. Here is how you walk in grace. You ready? You must understand the Protestant doctrine that your righteousness is not something that's internal, that starts with you. Your righteousness is something that is external. It's something that is given to you by Christ. Your righteousness is Christ. Your righteousness is where Christ is. It's not something you conjure up as you try to merit God's favor. It doesn't work that way. That's why so many of us are not walking in the joy that we should be walking in. God has made it to where we're to walk in joy, that Christ came that we might have life and have it to the full. But the reason we don't walk in that is because in our mind, there's always this little voice that condemns us and says, maybe you're not really a Christian because you still struggle with sin. Maybe you're not really a Christian because that person's way more sanctified than you. Maybe you're not really a Christian because you still have doubts and concerns and fears. Maybe you just prayed a prayer, but you're not really a Christian and it starts to, to get you to question those things. Here's what you need to understand. If you are looking to yourself for righteousness, you will always be depressed. When you lay your head down on the pillow at night, you will realize all the ways you failed that day. You argued with your spouse. You were too snippy with your kids. You had thoughts you shouldn't have had, right? You might've done a finger gesture when somebody cut you off in traffic. You've done a thousand things that day to offend God. And if you look at yourself, you'll think, I'm dirty. But what you have to do is you have to realize your righteousness does not come from you. Your righteousness is a gift from Christ. This is why the reformers had a very popular phrase when it came to this. It's that the righteousness is justitia aliana. It's an alien righteousness, meaning alien, foreign, outside of you. Your righteousness is not here. Your righteousness is Christ and it is imputed to you by faith. So what you need to do when you lay your head on the pillow and you think to yourself, was I a good Christian today? You need to stop and think, was Christ faithful today? Okay, then I was too. Is Christ still perfect? Then I'm still perfect. Is Christ still loved by the Father? Then I'm still loved by the Father. You don't have to worry about how you're doing because the answer of how you're doing is always awful and same thing for me. I'm a professional Christian and it's still the worst, okay? Your righteousness is given to you by Christ. It is only by stopping those thoughts where you say, how good am I doing? You stop that and you say, I'm righteous in Christ. I'm forgiven in Christ. I'm perfect in Christ. I'm sinless in Christ. My identity is in Christ. I've died. It's now Christ who lives in me. Martin Luther says it this way. This is the reason why our theology is certain. It snatches us away from ourselves and places us outside of ourselves so that we do not depend on our own strength, conscience, experience, person, or works, but depend on that which is outside ourselves. That is, on the promise and truth of God which cannot deceive. That is where your hope is. Let me say it this way. Let's say that there is a kid in an orphanage and he gets adopted into a good family, okay? But he doesn't really believe that it's too good to be true. He's lived in this foster home or he's lived in this orphanage his whole life and he gets adopted into a good family and he just has trouble believing it. That's not been his experience. That's not what he spent most of his life knowing. And so all of a sudden he just can't enjoy any of it. His new parents say, 
hey, you can sleep in this warm bed. And he goes, I don't know if I want to sleep in that warm bed because I don't know if y'all are really my parents. Maybe you'll put me back up for adoption. You buy this kid some toys and he plays with them, but he can't fully enjoy them because they might get taken away. After all, he doesn't know if you're gonna put him back up for adoption. He doesn't know what it's like to belong to a good family, okay? He hides food in his pockets at school because he doesn't know if you're gonna feed him. He doesn't know if he's gonna get his next meal. At some point, the father has to go to the son and say, listen, I don't care whether or not you feel like you're adopted. You're adopted and I'm not letting you go. Sleep in the bed. I'm gonna force you to be free. You sleep in the bed. Play with the toy, but you're gonna take it away. I'm not gonna take it away. In fact, here's some more toys. You're not gonna give me enough food. We're gonna go get pizza right now. It's the same way in our spiritual lives. We have been adopted into a new family, the family of God. And because we're so used to living under the slavery of sin, we have a tendency to think it's too good to be true. Maybe it's not true. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe God will put me back up for adoption. Maybe he'll cast me aside. And what God screams at us in his word is this. I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. God doesn't put his kids back up for adoption. That's what the Bible would scream to us. You are secure, not because of anything in you. You're secure because you have a good father. On that note, let's pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this text. I pray for those that are walking in some type of sin. I pray for repentance for them. We all are walking in sin to some extent, but if there's high-handed, unrepentant sin, I pray if uh, wherever we might be believing false doctrines that you would uh, cause us to repent, that we might hold the faith once for all delivered to the saints, passed down through the apostles in 2,000 years of history. I pray for those that are worried, thinking that they can never really just rest in their salvation. They can never really just enjoy the grace because they feel like you'll disown them. You'll put them up for adoption. Maybe they're not really saved, whatever it is. I pray that maybe for the first time, they'd stop putting their faith in their faith and they would put their faith in a person, Christ. We confess that you save us despite our best efforts to run away. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.